Hello, 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 and happy Monday, and welcome to another edition of Crossing Broadcast. I'm Adam Lefko. You can find me on Twitter at Adam Lefko. I have Kyle Scott. You can find him on Twitter at Crossing Broad. And of course, Russell Joy at Joy on Broad. Uh, we always want to bring you guys the best and the most fun stuff that's going on in Philadelphia sports. Unfortunately, the most noteworthy thing is the passing of Phillies legend and catcher Darren Dutch Dalton. I think we've all had memories of the guy. I think that for a lot of people, this is coming as a surprise. I think people that were working in Philadelphia, it sounds like this was very common and and, and people knew that Darren was uh, battling for his health. Uh, We all obviously want to say rest in peace and we hope that his family's doing okay. Kyle, you've kind of known for a while that Dutch was kind of up against it. Yeah. I had heard a few months ago that, uh, that he was, he was not well and it was not looking good. And then I think, I don't, I think it was just kind of a poorly kept secret, um, you know, amongst people in this little racket or whatever. And then I guess it was last week or the week before a bunch of former players and people related to the game kind of all at once sent out their thoughts and prayers. So, some email must have gone out to friends and family, you know, kind of giving an update on him. And I think that was the the first time a lot of, a lot of people probably realized that he had taken a turn for the worst. Cause I think last we heard six plus eight months ago, I mean, he had a foundation that looked like he was doing better. So a little bit of a surprise, but also not that surprising uh, to hear the news last night. So super, super disappointing, shitty way to uh, kick off the week. For me, yeah. he was he was the first he was the first player that I loved in any sport. So I was born in '83, and uh, yeah, so you know, right about seven years old were my first memories of Dutch. And then obviously, when I was ten, there was the '93 stuff. And I imagine most of our audience is in a similar boat. So uh, yeah, it sucks. Fifty-five years old. Uh, I'm just reading something right here from Jim Salisbury saying that it was a four-year battle with brain cancer. Um, yeah, what are the what are the things that you remember most, Russ? I guess what's your what's your remembrance for Dar- for Darren? Well, when when the Phillies went to the World Series in '93, I was two, so I don't have vivid memories of of Dutch playing. My my I guess fondest memories were were actually of him on the radio. Um, when he was on uh, on the Fanatic a few years ago, I guess, and and the uh, the sound drop of like right on Mike, like that that kind of thing is is what I remember Dutch more for. I, I remember the the kind of way that he, if you were having a, an awful day, that listening to him on the radio, you just kind of got that uh, that exuberance, that love of life, that joy in his, uh, you know, the way that he took on every day. And I think that's that's the kind of thing that sticks with me, is that you know even on even on a, a a terrible day, if you would turn on the fanatic and he was on with like Mike Mizzinelli or whoever, um, I just those are the kind of things that that stand out to me. I I like I said, it was it was really before my time. Right. Uh, For but, me, it was Darren Dalton. It wasn't even like a certain play. Like I remember he had that one play where he caught it, uh, like kind of over his shoulder behind the plate. Uh, that was the one that I always saw of him. But the image of Darren Dalton wearing the backwards hard cap 
and like mm-hmm. walking out to the mound was always the image that's burned in my mind. Like it wasn't even him batting. It was just him having ripped the mask fresh off and like still walking around. And he was the one that my teachers always had a crush on. Like he was the one that my elementary school teachers, like Mrs. McLean and stuff like that, like they all had pictures of Darren Dalton or calendars of Darren Dalton. Like he was like the original like man crush Monday. I feel like for Phillies fans, like I just remember all the women loved Darren Dalton and he was always like the pinnacle for me of like, what dudes were supposed to look like in Philadelphia. Like, I I know that sounds really corny and weird, but like Eric Lindros and Darren Dalton came in the Philly lore in like the early nineties. And I just remember all old, like I was, you know, I was like in 93, I was like seven or eight. So for me, like, you know, you start paying attention to that stuff, but he was always cool. And that 93 team, like, all those guys were, you know, they were badass, but they were also kind of fat and slobby. Like, if you want to be real, like the mullet was not an attractive look, but Dalton was the only one that could pull it off. Like, Incavelia was fat. Kruk was fat. Eisenreich, you know, did his whole whatever the hell was wrong with him thing. Like, Dykstra, like, you never wanted him to meet your daughter. Like, he would spit on your foot. And then you had Darren Dalton, who had, like, the perfect hair and it was always tan and like was jacked. And then like, he was the one that managed all the crazy personalities of Kurt Schilling and Mitch Williams. Like he was the only one that I feel like was socially acceptable enough to go to an award show out of all those guys. And so Dutch was always the the, the dude that kept it all together. And he was the catcher. And it's funny that, like, the two best catchers in Philly's history, at least in the last 20-something years, Chooch and Darren Dalton, seemingly have, like, the... They're both so lovable, but they're both so different. And Darren Dalton, I just... It's it's weird to think of that generation of guys are going to start to pass away. That makes me really sad, but that's what happens with sports is, you know, the legends start to pass, but... Yeah, it's uh, I don't I don't uh, maybe that play where he catches it uh, behind home plate, but for me it's more the image of him kind of just walking around with just the hard hat on. So two quick things, uh, the like the Harry Callis kind of stories um, during telecasts, like even even going back to like I guess towards the the end of Harry's career, um, when uh, like when he would just look back so lovingly and fondly on that '93 team. Um, those were those were definitely some good ones. Um, the other thing is, the timing of it is it's not like there's ever a good time to di- like to to die, obviously. But the fact that the the Wall of Fame Alumni Weekend thing is coming up this weekend, I think couldn't be better timed. It's it's a perfect scenario, I think, for all of those players who and people who were impacted by Dutch um, to be able to to kind of grieve together and to kind of you know, embrace his life. And now instead of it being a weekend that was going to have this like looming, awful, awful shadow, you know, this, this terrible shadow, you know, now it kind of becomes a memorial weekend for the, the team, the organization, all those players. And, and actually it, it all kind of worked out in, in its own weird way. This weekend opening up has, has become 
you know, what what will probably go down as one of the most touching, I, w- I would think, moments in, in Philly's history. Yeah, if you're if you're looking at it cynically. Um, but I agree with you. The Phillies kind of were probably scrambling a little bit to fill some of the weekend since they stripped Pete Rose out of it, and now uh, there's going to be a lot of Dutch. So that will be a that'll be there will be some tear jerkers in there. Um, Russ, to your point about remembering him more as a radio guy, it, it makes you realize how how long it's been really since he's played. Um, if you ask me about guys like Bill Clement or something like that, I wasn't alive for the Broad Street Bullies, Gary Dornhofer, so I know these guys from announcing, and uh, it makes you realize how how old how quickly time can go. That there are there's a generation of people who remember Dutch from his uh, right on you know right on stuff, and then the right on fight on stuff when he got sick on ninety seven five and not playing. Um, Adam, to your point, the uh, I, I'm totally with you. I was thinking this morning, making coffee before we did this, I'm like, what do I remember about Dutch? And I kept coming back to all those little things that had little to do with the actual game on the field. Uh, you talking about him walking to the mound with the helmet backwards, sometimes the mask propped up on the helmet. That is specifically something I thought of. Um I guess maybe it's when you're that age, you're a little bit impressionable, and you pick up on things about your favorite player. Uh, for me, it started in 1990. I was seven, and my birthday is August 15th, so we went to the game that year, and that happened to be the day that Terry Mulholland threw a no-hitter, uh, and Dutch was the catcher. And this was 90 before he was really sort of a household name in Philly. I think he had gotten here in 89, I want to say. Um, but I remember like in my memory, I remember more about Dutch in that game, the way he went out to the mound and picked up Mo Holland. Um, he did a signing event for 97.5 back in 2010. He was actually in a Mike Missinelli show. And I went with, uh, my then girlfriend and now wife, uh, and I think her mom. And I remember talking to Dutch and I told him like, Hey, yeah, one of the things I remember about you was catching Mo Holland's no hitter. And he kind of looked at me like I didn't do anything. I just caught, but, um, but I noticed it was then I started picking up on all those little things that he did the way he would crouch differently. If there was a guy on first, he would prop his legs up and the, the sorts of things catchers do all the time and players do all the time. But when you're that young, you like study guys that you love. So I would, I, you know, I would catch in the backyard, not usually in games because I was too skinny, but like I would try and emulate Dutch. I would crouch the way he crouched, I, the way he would throw back to the mound with sort of like his flat, his straight, lazy arm. The way he would, uh, if he wanted to pitch low, he would almost put his glove face down in the dirt and then wiggle it a little. Like all these little unique, quirky things about him um, are, are, you know, kind of like you said, the things I remember about him. And uh, yeah, I mean, he, for me, you mentioned Lindros. He was one of those guys. It was like Dutch Lindros and Chase were probably the three like transformative players in my sports fandom career. And Darren was the first. And so yeah. it sucks. It's it interesting. Sucks. I mean, he wore 10, which is a badass number. And, mm-hmm. you know, John LeClaire wore 10. And I find the, you know, those are two similar guys to me, just in terms of like John LeClaire, Darren Dalton, two dudes that I've never heard really anyone in Philly really speak that bad on. 
Uh, it's also interesting. I didn't even realize Darren Dalton, I forgot, was on that 97 Florida Marlins World Series team. So he's one of the few guys from that 93 Phillies team that actually went on to win a World Series, getting traded later. And yeah, he had like a six, seven-year stint with 97.5. So I'm sure, like you're saying and Russ is saying, a lot of people have that memory. Uh, I, I, don't, I doubt this the Phillies knew yesterday, but I think it's pretty, uh, pretty awesome that the Phillies got a, a, a very clutch win over the Rockies. Another unbelievable Aaron Nola performance, and we're sitting here and all of a sudden we need to admit that we have a top five pitcher in the NL uh, that's leading the staff and not bad to, to uh, build around. Uh, Cameron Rupp, they were down one, hit a two-run double in the top of the ninth uh, to get the win. Uh, and then, of course, the only clip that I saw on Instagram and Twitter was a video uh, or a gif of one of the pitchers dabbing eight times. But a good Phillies win on a shitty Phillies day. Uh, but, yeah, man, R.I.P. Darren Dalton, you were the man, and we love you. Um, anything else you guys want to talk about with the Phillies just with the win yesterday? Um I'm so gun-shy watching that team right now just because I know that even if they have a win, uh, a lead, I'm afraid they're going to blow it. But I don't know, man. I'm really trying to watch more Phillies down the stretch. Like, I'm trying because I want to really see who in this core is kind of worth my time to build around. I forced myself into watching a little bit this weekend. And uh, I think I even tweeted something about why am I even bothering watching the Phillies? So I think at some point they were – I think they were up. I turned on the game. They gave up a couple runs. It ended up tied. Shut it off for a while. Went upstairs to go to bed. Pulled it up on the tablet. As soon as I turned it on, they blew it. Like the the bullpen blew another game. But then yesterday, I I was letting the Phillies game play as background noise. And I got to see Cameron Rupp crush a ball into uh, left center field, driving the the winning runs. So uh, Yeah, it's awesome. Again, like this is where I want to see a couple young guys do well, like a Nick Williams. Yep. I'd I'd like to watch those guys. He's a baller. Um, if if nothing else, like when your team is awful, the September call-ups and this time of year is is maybe the best the best time to to watch the Phillies. Yeah, because so, we need to see what they have. They're off tonight, Monday night. They got two games in Atlanta Tuesday and Wednesday, and then it's the four game homestand against the Mets. Uh, which has the Alumni Wall of Fame night, which is going to be interesting to watch Saturday night just to see what they do because of what happened uh, with Pete Rose. Um, All right, so you guys ready to move on to Eagles? Uh, 36 freaking thousand were at the link for the scrimmage slash practice on Sunday. Uh, It was 23,000 a few weeks ago, so that's 60,000 in two random... uh, workouts and all that stuff. Um, one of the topics that I, I think is really interesting is the Daniel Der- Jeremiah versus Jordan Matthews thing. That That's a Nelson Aguilar discussion. So Daniel Jeremiah went on his podcast and, and Jimmy Kemsky kind of transcribed most of it and said that Nelson Aguilar is going to be the Eagles slot receiver. I'll be shocked if he's not. I don't know what that means for Jordan Matthews. So Jordan Matthews was asked about, and Matthews said, it's so early in training camp. People make so many bold predictions. The craziest thing is I make a bold prediction or say something outlandish, and if it's wrong, I get scrutinized. He might do it, speaking about Daniel Jeremiah, and it's like, okay, 
quote, his mock drafts are pretty bad every year and nobody gets on him. So last podcast, I did say that people need to start taking, uh, start tracking takes, especially draft we talked about. But it's just crazy that from all of these workouts and all of this stuff, the Nelson Aguilar train is going so strong that national pundits are willing to, you know, go, oh yeah, Nelson Aguilar is the guy and completely ignore that Jordan Matthews, while not always the most consistent, was the leading receiver the last two years and really the only consistent option the last two years. The Nelson Aguilar stuff is getting out of control, and Kyle, I know that you think it's crazy. Yeah, the steady... I don't get the steady drumbeat of Aguilar stuff. Like, every every beat guy, everyone who's been in training camp is lining up to say how good that he looks. And that's fine. Like, I'm sure he does look good. He's a talented guy. He There's a reason... There's a reason why he was a first-round draft pick. He's talented. He's athletic. He he has all the tools to be a very good wide receiver. His problem is, obviously, that he struggles. I, I don't know if it's the possibility of an impending hit. I don't know if it's the yips. I mean, there are just some people who have trouble translating their ability into game pressure situations. Granted, he's young. He can improve. He, he has all of the tools, but... I'm like I'm with you. The the fact that there is this drumbeat of Aguilar stuff, and to the point where you have serious. It sounds like serious discussion that Jordan Matthews could be traded because he's in the last year of his contract. Tim McManus has a report up today. He says don't rule it out. It might not make sense for the Eagles to pay him Tavon Austin, Kenny Stills type money, especially if right now he projects to be their third receiver. I assume when he says third receiver, he means Alshon one. Aguilar two and then Matthews and I don't know or if he's replacing Torrey Smith as the number two guy there I'm not sure um I don't get it I think I I get that he's in a contract year and Matthews is is a guy maybe you can get a little bit of value for but like you said he's been he's actually racked up a ton of catches despite the fact that he's one of he's symbolic of the wide receiver group that we like to hate he's been quite productive in that number one role where he didn't belong with a rookie quarterback and then a bad quarterback before that. I, I'm One of the reasons I was so excited for the Eagles offense this year, and no exaggeration, no hyperbole here, was that they were going to be able to put Matthews potentially in his rightful spot. You have Alshon and then either Torrey or Nelson on the outside, and Matthews was going to make a terrific slot receiver in this league. And it would suck to let him go and trade him based partly on the fact that Nelson Aguilar looks good in training camp. The other part of this is Alshon Jeffrey's got a little bit of a shoulder thing. It's looking increasingly likely like he's not going to play in the first preseason game. So something to consider. And Matthews himself has a knee injury that he hurt last year because Doug Peterson insists upon tackling in practice. And apparently he still is still bothering him 12 months later, which is also concerning, but he had a pretty productive year last year with it. So I'm, I'm just baffled by the whole thing. Like let's, play a few preseason games first before we entertain the idea of Nelson Aguilar being able to catch a ball uh, with the chance that he could be tackled within the next five seconds. Man, a, a knee injury that's still going on a year later. I didn't know that the Sixers doctors are working with uh, Jordan Matthews. Um, real quick, there was a, another quote that uh, Jordan Matthews had uh, in a Philly.com article where he said he doesn't worry much about Daniel Jeremiah or any of those guys. They don't play ball. They're not in the front office. Um, so I wanted to kind of toss this back to Adam because 
I mean, considering the fact that Adam is on a, a national show, Sims and Lefko, Bleacher Report, drink, drink. Drink. Um, I just wanted to, to ask Adam, I, like, in, in my view, I would assume, and maybe incorrectly, I would assume that if you're a national guy, that you're going to kind of rely on some of the impressions of the beat writers. Now, I saw that Jer- Daniel Jeremiah was out at practice at some point this past week to, to see the team. But I'm wondering, if you're trying to cover storylines based on teams that you don't get to watch a whole lot of or you haven't been out to see practice, how much do you have to rely on the beat guys? Or are you relying more on team sources, guys in the front office, coaching staff? So um, Daniel Jeremiah, as it also I think mentions in an article, used to work with the Eagles. He was connected to possibly being the front office guy before they went and hired um, the guy out of Chicago, at Baltimore, excuse me. Um, I remember I went with he, – here's the answer to your question. I went with Sims uh, to four different training camps in two weeks, uh, like two years ago. Went to like Raiders and the Niners and Seahawks and all that stuff. And he knew different guys in all the front offices. And what happens when you're a, a national guy like Daniel Jeremiah is and you go to these front offices – or to these practices, a lot of times they take care of you. They they give you the right information. They tell you kind of what's been going on. You kind of you, you ask a lot of questions. Me, you know, who's doing well, who's not, and they kind of give you the lay of the land. They don't bullshit you because they have no reason to bullshit you. And they would you would go there, and so I'm sure Daniel Jeremiah went there, and they were like, listen. Nelson Aguilar looks fantastic. So now he already has that in his mind. He's hearing that. Now he's going to go out there and he's going to watch and he's going to see if it matches up. Um, I understand why people are having this this reaction to Nelson Aguilar, like Kyle said. He is more explosive than Jordan Matthews. He is more athletic than Jordan Matthews. He's also more inconsistent and has dropped more passes than Jordan Matthews. And But I understand why you look at him and go, oh, he's going to be better. Oh, and, and you know what? Look, it's a very attractive narrative to say he finally gets it. He needed other people to motivate him. My fear right now is that Howie Roseman is, is really thinking like this, like a Sixers fan. And what I mean by that is he's looking at Jordan Matthews and going, you know what? If he leaves next year, I better get something for him. What I want you to get for Jordan Matthews is a year of waiting. I don't need you to trade Jordan Matthews to lock up a fifth-round pick because newsflash, I don't fucking care about fifth-round picks. Like, I know that everyone seemingly loves when you get something, but I'm still not happy that we traded an offensive lineman for a seventh-round conditional pick. Uh, because you wanted to get something for him. I I want Jordan Matthews on this roster. I want him there because, A, like, like Kyle said, I don't trust that Alshon Jeffrey's going to be healthy. B, I don't trust that Torrey Smith's going to be healthy. C, I don't trust Nelson Aguilar altogether. So if we go in with four really good wide receivers on a team that people are saying could go to the playoffs... And maybe you, you know, the benefit of trading him is, you know, this Marcus Johnson kid's looking really good. No. I want to see 
Jordan Matthews on this team. I want all of the receivers available. I I don't I don't want to trade him just to get an asset because Nelson Aguilar is looking good. I I want Nelson Aguilar like I'm rooting for Nelson Aguilar to be better than Jordan Matthews this season. It's better contractually. It's better athletically. And heck, Nelson Aguilar is a better prospect than Jordan Matthews if it pans out. I'm just not taking this risk right now, and Kyle. For the sake of beating a dead horse here, um, like again, you you come back to the the thing after they signed Alshon Jeffrey and Torrey Smith, and you're like, oh wow, they just took a a legitimate weakness and turned it into a potential very good strength. If, if some things break right, I think the Eagles can have a top seven wide receiver core in the league. Now, that's dependent upon a lot. That's dependent on Alshon Jeffrey being healthy. That's dependent on Torrey Smith or Nelson Aguilar serving as a workable second outside, opposite outside receiver. And then I'm pretty confident, I've always been confident that Jordan Matthews would be excellent in the slot. So you're, you've you've improved the position. The, the concept of trading Matthews. And again, we don't know like what the percentage chance is here, but it sounds like there's a the the drum beat of Aguilar compared with the drum beat of Matthews could get traded are are marching in lockstep together. And I look at it as there's still a whole bunch of question marks. One, Alshon Jeffrey already has just a tiny little injury asterisk next to him. Torrey Smith and Nelson Aguilar are, are both huge question marks. Both have potential and ability, but have you know really yet to consistently put it together and then pl- add in injury concerns. And then Jordan Matthews, yeah, he's got a little bit of a knee thing, but he's probably the one guy you can count on where you know exactly what you're going to get from him and you know his baseline. He has been playing out of position for the last couple of seasons, so you know that whatever production you got from him, you could get that much more because he's no longer going to be the almost the focus of defenses. And then, oh, by the way, add in the fact that Zach Ertz and Wentz, I know Ertz is an end-of-season guy, but seem to have developed a rapport and have continued that rapport into the offseason. The passing game could be very strong, and I would it would like it would blow it would be such a howie thing to you know think he's smarter than everybody else and move Matthews and then get into the season and realize that Nelson Aguilar still sucks. Alshon Jeffrey's going to miss his token four to six games, and Torrey Smith is was a complete wild card that didn't work out, a la DGB. And then here we yeah. are with no receivers again. I don't and look like, the drives me nuts that we're talking about this. So we're it doesn't drive me nuts because I understand it, and this is what. Uh, training camp observations creates. By the way, this was started because everyone said he was great. Just to note, on Sunday, Nelson Aguilar dropped two passes. So, uh, you know, it's it just shows you he hasn't been perfect every single time. But this kind of also goes to my problem with training camp observation, which goes to what Russ said earlier. So, like... I was reading like Brandon Lee Galton, who I respect very much at Bleeding Green Nation, just from what they've built there. It's pretty awesome. Kind of like with Kyle, I respect what they've built too. Just people that understand what what fans actually want and giving it to them. You know, he went, he had a whole post about how incredible Carson Wentz looked and the throws he was making and all that stuff. Um, Russ, so you were saying about national versus local. And I'll never forget we're at Seattle camp and Sims and I went in there and 
one of the head guys kind of broke us down in like a room, what was going on, who was looking well, who was not. And we went out there and I'll never forget, we were actually the one that caught my attention was Raiders camp. And we went over to the second, to the other field and we're watching Amari Cooper um, as like a second year player. And we're watching him like kind of running these routes and he is just destroying people with his footwork. And Sims is like hitting me and he's like, I've never seen a, a wide receiver with this kind of footwork at his age. And we're like marveling over it. And all the other beat people were on the other field. And we go back over and Amari had like a drop and they all start furiously tweeting and writing. And I'm looking at tweets and it's like, oh, rough day for Amari Cooper, like blah, 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 blah. And it's at that moment you realize that just because you're there to watch doesn't mean you know what you're watching. And that's everybody. Like, I, if I was sent out there to watch and I had to write down notes... I feel very confident that I would get some good stuff, but I also feel very confident that I would miss a lot or not know what to look for. So when I see these training camp observations, whether it's Eagles or everybody else, and I don't have anyone particularly in mind, talking about bad routes or drop passes or whatever, these guys don't know what schemes they're working on, what drills they're really trying to perfect, what it is they're really trying to accomplish in these drills, who's really doing good, who's really doing poorly. And you got, it, it's tough because I, I just have seen so many beat guys not know what to focus on because there's so many things going on at once. So that's why for me, I'm paying attention to what happened on the field last year? Where were they? I care more about how they look in pads physically, who came into training camp in shape, because until they make the cuts, I just don't trust these beat guys being able to really watch every single thing. There's like eight workouts going on at one time. So that's just my little note on training camp observations. I just don't think they always know what they're, they're supposed to pay attention to. And I wouldn't... uh I mean, I'm with you mostly. I think it's it's a lot of it's it's the search for content for a lot of people, and the the concept of live tweeting tweeting training camp is a five year old thing and didn't used to exist back in the day. But we're in a you know we're in an atmosphere now where you need an opinion on everything 24 seven to stay relevant. And um, for a lot of beat guys, I mean, this manifests itself in tweeting. Every update from a Flyers game, like the Flyers guys are notorious for doing, or someone in a, you know hits a home run or throws a walk someone in a Phillies game, you get seven tweets about it. So there's a little overreaction, city. That said, I, I you know there are these guys are there every day, and some are certainly better than others, or have been doing it longer than others, or know football better than others. So I don't totally discount the opinions of people there saying, hey, he looks good. And maybe they do or do not know exactly what they're working on at the moment, but there is certain something to be said for the eye test when you could see that a guy looks improved and is doing athletic things and making nice catches and not dropping balls. But again, when you're doing this in, in shorts and helmets, it's really hard to extrapolate the uh, conclusions. That said, uh, I'll try my own hand at a transition here. Um, what, 36,000 oh, people show up? yesterday uh so you have a whole 72,000 additional eyes looking at these players 
Um, pretty impressive from a fan base standpoint that the Eagles are drawing. Well, not a, not surprising that they're drawing more than the Phillies are for home games, a lot more for training camp. But uh, I don't know. Is there another city that is getting that sort of turnout for their open workouts? I have no idea. Um, that I'd big, assume, I would uh, assume somewhere. Yeah, no, I know. Like I've seen, I've seen clips of Green Bay camp, but it's big. Um, I this is definitely up there. Like it, it definitely is up there, especially when I see Tory Smith uh, and a lot of his comments the last few weeks. You know, comparing it to Baltimore and San Francisco. Uh, two good fan bases in the league, especially San Francisco, and saying that this is crazy. Uh, no, this is this is wild. Russ, did you have something you wanted to add to that before? Yeah, so just really quick. Jordan Matthews versus Nelson Aguilar over the last two years. Um, Matthews has actually, and it makes sense because of the the rate that he's been thrown to, but he's he's either been number one or two on the team in drop passes. Um, and what was it? There was another thing I was just looking at. I just lost it. Um, but for the last two, oh, it's he's been one or two in drop passes, but also first downs, which I think kind of comes back to the idea of why it's so important that you don't, if you're Howie Rosen, why you don't get rid of Jordan Matthews. Last year, he was second on the team uh, with 38 first down receptions, which was best, you know, second on the team the year before he led with 44. I don't think that you can just one day decide that that a, an impressive training camp by Nelson Aguilar is now all of a sudden going to make him uh, an exponentially better player. Like, I think if, if nothing else, you've got to ride out the year with, with Jordan. Because if nothing else, like we've said before, he, it always seems like his drops are on an important game-changing, like, third and six. But, you know, he for a guy the last three years that's been either one or two on the team in, in first-down receptions, like, if nothing else... He's relied upon heavily by a, a slew of quarterbacks, and he's also been able to, to come up large in those moments for the most part. So that, that, I think, was the only thing that really stood out to me. So the Eagles' first preseason game is going to be August 10th. Holy crap, that's Thursday, isn't it? That's awesome. Green Bay Packers, August 10th. I will be back. Yes, I have to go to Charlotte for a few days to do a story about an Instagram person. Because wait, 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 know, what's this? Bleacher Report. I want to hear what that entails. Um, no, there's this guy Juji Mufu. The oh yeah, Juji. He's the guy that has the long hair that does like he like lift weights on like two chairs and like can do a split. You've definitely seen Instagram yeah. stuff on him before. Is this the mil- um, is this the military guy who was everywhere last week doing the crazy workouts? I, he definitely does crazy workouts. I honestly haven't read up on him enough to know if he's a military guy. Uh, oh yeah, so I'm not going to do the podcast on Wednesday. Um <laughs> Well, realized. you're not supposed to tell the people that. Adam. I just now realized. The, uh... Well, I have to be there for the few days, so like I have to go and like meet him and all that stuff. Yeah, I'm not gonna be able to do it. Sorry. Shit. I just realized that. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's a thing at Bleach Report. They want me to go and like interview Instagram people. Uh, Are man. you? He at least is have... worth it because I think he's crazy. Do you? Um, do you? Are you expected to? like IG video, your interviews with these guys to bring it like full inception. We have like, I'll probably, I, I doubt it. No, we have like full camera people that are going to be there. Some lady's going to touch up my makeup beforehand. Um, but 
he seems crazy. And I, I like to see when, if crazy people are actually crazy or if they just project crazy. Um, I have a, I have an iTunes comment. It's a little crazy. It's not that crazy. It's from Action J19, whose five-star comment is clap, 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 fire emoji, fire emoji, fire emoji. And it looks like uh, their handle is Azim 19 uh, Great podcast. Listening to y'all talk beer pong was so satisfying. By the way, um, my mom listened to the podcast, and which means she's probably listening to this one. Uh, so hi, hi, mom. Uh, but she was she was very proud of me for all of my beer pong accomplishments that she didn't know about, uh, and she wondered what I actually did in college. Um, this guy uh, Azim, I guess his name is, uh, has been an Eagles fan since five. I, I need your help on this part. I saw Janet's boob before I knew what boobs were. Great, but even back then, I knew the Eagles were my squad. Do you think he's talking about Janet Jackson? I think that would be the only uh, the only breast of a woman named Janet that we would all admit that's to. Tr- that's what I mean. Seen. Or Janet Reno came to mind. <laughs> the, I yeah, I, I, I can't think of another uh, Janet's boob that I am with which I have intimate knowledge. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I bring like I bring that. that up to say that you and I. This is what he wrote: are Siamese fans. I love the convos. Y'all are smart and unapologetic without being problematic. So that's cool. I like that question. Living in New York, where do you watch Eagles games or are you just at home? Parentheses. Can I join not to be weird? <laughs> uh, I just moved here a year ago, been to a few Eagles bars, but which is the best? Uh, and then another question. Um, I So I spend the day at Bleacher Report because we do a show usually at noon, uh, Sims and myself, and then we have to do videos like kind of at night. And so we have like, I have, there's like a setup where I watch like six or seven games at once. Um, And anyone will tell you, I'm usually hopped up on coffee and a bagel, and I'm just kind of like pacing around yelling at different monitors to like producers. Like the first few weeks, I am unbearable because I'm, I can pay attention to seven games for like at least a half and then my ADD kicks in, but I'm able to kind of process like, oh, Ravens third down, they're 0 for three on third down, pay attention to this. Oh, 49ers second and long, watch out for the screen, like nonsense like that. It's, it's addicting to watch the games like that. Uh, and then his follow-up question was, what do you need to see out of Mills and Saul to be comfortable with them as starters? Thanks, y'all. Thank you, Azim. Appreciate your brother. Mills is a starter, and you have to be confident. I looked up who Saul could be, and I guess it's the rookie, Trey Sullivan. Uh, I don't feel comfortable at all uh, with him as a starter. Um it's funny because Kemsky or someone wrote an article saying that with the signing of Corey Graham and how he looked at practice, the Eagles could be running some three safety sets, which I've been Don't saying. Don't pull since, a muscle patting yourself on the back for that yeah, one. Yeah, I won't. Uh, I'll just say that I've been saying that since training, that since the draft, that I won in the draft Buda Baker uh, for some three safety sets. But uh, Mills, I think Mills is going to be – one of those classic guys that we look at next year and go, 
He's been a starter for two years now, but we're not. But he's immediately going to be replaced if we can sign better guys. But Azim, I'm not. I don't. I can't watch games at bars. I've never watched an Eagles game in a New York City bar just because I've been working, and um, I would much rather watch at home than a bar. Bars are. Um, Problematic. You, I get too messed up. Are you dis? Uh, does it like bother you at all to have to watch games from the office? Like, given given what I do, I mean, I, I I'm always on my laptop on Sundays, but like, there's a, a certain part of my brain where it's like I have to be on the couch watching the game, even if I'm quasi working or posting stuff. Like, I don't feel like I'm watch watching Sunday football if I'm not on my couch with Scott Hansen on the iPad or something. Yeah, uh, for me, it's I I need to watch it work now because I have like they literally built us a wall of eight televisions to watch games on, and I, it my 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 coverage of the of the league now it's more of like an NFL thing. So if I were to only watch the Eagles game, it would um, it, it would really be tough because I need to know about the other games that are going on. And especially the last few years where uh, the Eagles were, I, of all the of teams, they're a, they're a very frustrating watch. Um, the Ravens game last year was frustrating. The defense as a whole uh, with the lack of cornerbacks is, I, I don't enjoy watching that football. It's, it's, you're watching another team take advantage of a, of a bad position, but um this is definitely going to be a year I've been thinking about it where when the Eagles are one of the eight TVs I'm watching, I will be focusing super, super heavily on them and I'm going to miss some of the other games. And then I spent a lot of my time during the week re-watching all the games that I didn't watch that closely. So using Game Pass and using film that I can get from Sims um, to kind of like see what happened in, in some of these bigger games. But... Yeah, if I had to watch one game right now, I like I would not be able to do Red Zone just because I'd want to see every Eagles play, but only watching the Eagles uh, would be tough. So, uh, whatever happens with this job and watching games like that, it's gonna like definitely scarred me. Is that a fun um, last thing? And sorry for for people wondering why I'm like barely talking here. I've got a headset issue on my end, so. Uh... I have to keep muting in and out, but like, is that a fun environment to watch a game? Like, I've always thought about guys who are doing post game shows or working at ESPN, like sitting in an office, presumably with a bunch of, uh, you know, expats from different cities, sitting around rooting for their own teams. Like, you're working, yes, but there's not many people that get to watch NFL Sundays in front of a wall of TVs with every game around a bunch of similarly like young dudes who are football fans. Yeah, and they're like a lot of them are like super football nerds that like live on Roto World and are just like every tweaked hamstring, whatever they're like announcing it to the office. People are like, ooh, uh, we have a lot of people there that are gambling degenerates, uh, which is always fun. I I started doing more gambling last year, and it was it's fun, you know. Like I'm, I'll never get crazy with it, but I'm. I think I'm actually going to be doing some gambling videos for Bleacher Report this year, which is hilarious. That's smart um, because they're going to um, – I mean, eventually there was, an, there was another article last week. Uh, I forget who said it, someone of note, that like basically beating the drum for legalized gambling. So I think there's such a huge – there's going to be such a huge opportunity and so much money coming into sports. Like just as the TV rights are dying out, there's going to be this – influx of gambling money 
because people are going to, you know, it, I feel like, like Daily Fantasy, DraftKings, and FanDuel have definitely moved the ball in that direction for some. Like I, you know, personally, from my experience, I'm a huge DraftKings guy, so I'm playing, I'm watching games I wouldn't have otherwise watched. I'm sitting to the end of three touchdown blowouts Sunday night and Monday night games because I still have something riding on it. Um, and gambling itself will take that to another level. Um, so yeah, I don't know where I'm oh, yeah. going with that, but I, no, it's gambling is gambling is exciting. It's fun. Uh, like, uh, I'll be honest, like week one last year, I dominated, uh, week three, I pretty much guaranteed the Steelers were going to beat the crap out of the Eagles. Uh, so that, you know, what's funny was when you gamble, you learn which lines Vegas is really curious about, and they don't really know either. Um, but in terms of the atmosphere of it, it's funny how every year we always have, whether it's like a, a new PA or a young intern or something, and I don't think we're going to have one this year that, you know, you always have the young guy that has to comment on every game because they need to show that they know what's going on in the NFL. And eventually, uh, Sims goes, you know, you need to shut the fuck up uh, because you're just, you won't stop talking. I end up talking too much, which is a, a problem as we're seeing right here. Um, but the, the, the one o'clock games feels like work because there's so many going on and you're trying to keep track of trends. And then when there's like two or three that come down to like the last drive, it's like pandemonium. The four o'clock games, there's usually three or four. That's usually where it's the better teams. And, and that's when you kind of get into like some debates and stuff. And that's a lot of fun. And then we try and crank out uh, all the videos that we need to as quickly as we can to be at home to watch Sunday night football. Um, and that's so it's a full day of just consuming play after play after play. Um, but it's fun, man. It's 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 a lot of fun to watch that many games at one time because there's never a dull moment. You know, there's going to be one game still going on. You never get eight commercials at one time, so it's fun. So let me uh, let me ask a question that I think people are going to hate me for. Um, traditionally, we look at at Flyers fans, and they're always accused of being cultish that they get so excited about the upcoming season and the thought that they're going to win the Stanley Cup, even though they haven't done it in 40 years. Um, does anybody ever just sit back and think about Eagles fans at large and just think that the Eagles might actually be the cultish team? 36,000 people to pack into a, stadium, into a stadium to watch a practice. Uh, like, granted, a training camp practice... Prior to there being any sort of game, there's really no semblance of, of anything structured, um, or, or maybe not structured is the best word. I, I know that the one high attendance day was a, was a scrimmage, but I don't know how into a scrimmage you get, and I don't know how that looks compared to what a regular game would look like. If it's like, do you play quarters? Do you only go by individual sets? Like These are things I don't know. But is there another team in the city that will take that many people and have that many fans come out to see a team that has not won in their lifetime and get overexcited for a team that, again, probably won't win this year, right? I think we could all agree to that. I I just think that there's this weird double standard that happens in, in Philly sports. Like, I know that the NFL is king, but I I don't get why so many people are so into going to training camp. 
like I don't know as a fan what you learn from from going out and watching Aguilar drop two passes or going out and seeing um Mac Hollins, you know, beat Rasul Douglas down the outside for a touchdown. Like I just don't get it. I've never gone to training camp. I don't know if I ever really want to go to training camp. I just don't totally get it. So, um Yeah, I think your takes a little bit ridiculous. Um although but I agree with you. I'm not a training camp guy. Um like I just can't get myself up for that. That said, I've gone to spring training three times and watched exhibition baseball. So to each his own. Like there's there's an experiential. But those are games, right? Like the, it that is different, though. I, I would argue that's a game. Correct. And you're going to Florida, and there's there's a whole lot of other things that go into it. So I, yeah, I agree with you. I'm not a training camp guy. I think for a lot of people, it's experiential. People used to go up to Lehigh, and that was a different experience because you weren't just sitting in a seat and watching practice. I mean, maybe you were, but you got to go up. You got to get very close to the players get your picture taken with them, hope of getting an autograph, like that. I had never gone to Lehigh, but for everyone who went, it was sort of a yearly pilgrimage for them. And people who don't have normal nine to five jobs could go up during the middle of the week and get pretty close to the action because you weren't fighting with that many people. And you could be reasonably on the field watching an NFL team, which is, is kind of cool. Now that all these teams are doing it at their practice facilities and doing it at home and the Eagles have moved it to home and they're just doing two practices at the link, it's their only opportunity. So for people who were in this um, mindset every year of going to see training camp, your only option now is going to Lincoln Financial Field to watch. But it's a, it seems like an entirely different experience. The Eagles do a nice job of getting fans involved. I saw a picture yesterday. There was a bunch of fans down on the field, so I guess they got to go down after the game and take pictures, or after the practice and take pictures. They do the military thing, so they try and make it a good event, and I'm sure there's some plenty of in, I'm going to say in-game, in-practice production to, to keep things light and interesting, and I'm guessing Spuds is on the field interviewing guys for the, the big scoreboard and all that stuff. So it's not my thing. I think it's impressive that that many people go. It's not the way I would necessarily choose to spend a Sunday. But that said, I'm also in, I'm probably like me and you, Russ, and and probably even you, Adam, like we're in the weirdest parts of our sports fandom in, I think, because when you grow up, when you're a kid, your experience is different. So for a kid going to a practice, being able to get closer than you normally would or meet a player or get an autograph, that's cool. Like that is an experience that you remember and, you know, I remember the times going to those autograph things at, at Citizens Bank Park and meeting Dutch. I remember those things. So for kids, it's a different experience. For adults, when you have kids, you're going to see your kids be happy. And I'm not getting off on watching practice anymore, but it would be cool to see my son get excited to watch that stuff. And But right now, like with a one and a half year old or a kid who's not really old enough to go and enjoy it, like I would say we are all at that 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 tail end of our youth fandom where we're just not interested in the bullshit but once you have kids that are old enough to experience it then there's a um you know there's a thing there for you in terms of the stepford thing real quick and the like coldish thing i think each of the local fan bases and i know that's just from putting shit out on twitter and getting trolled over stuff have their cult fans the sixers process guys are very is a very loud vocal minority the phillies fans in 2010 like phillies twitter philly twitter was kind of built around the phillies because it was right during their runs and the sports fans on philly were a lot of like the hardcore phillies guys 
the Eagles, the Eagles are just huge because they're an NFL team. And the Flyers, we all know, like their fans, you know, could be a little bit nuts. And and of all the white, rosy colored fan bases, it's definitely the Flyers fans who take the cake. But to your point, Russ, I was a little amazed that my one negative tweet about like Garrett Blunt when he came here got as much feedback as I've gotten on any tweet, I would say, this year. And I was kind of surprised because Eagles fans tend to be, I don't know, realistic, but um, cynical, negative, um, kind of like aware that things typically don't work out for us. And I was surprised at the number of people who were just blindly like, how could you say this? This is a great trade. He's going to be our savior, our number one back. And that concerned me a little bit, but I don't think I don't think the, as a whole there might be more of them because there's more Eagles fans. But I don't think as a whole anybody really rivals Flyers fans in terms of like their blind loyalty. I don't, I don't, I don't think you're wrong about the Flyers, but I just don't think that we we look at Eagles fans the same way that we look at like I I, I get the process, the process group of Sixers. I get that we look at ho- hockey is is its own animal it's a sport that that i think the the general consensus of of sports fans nationwide would say is probably like the maybe the the biggest outlier it's not it it is mainstream but it's mainstream to a point i just don't i don't think that we look at at eagles fans quite the same as as maybe we should so like when i when i see on twitter somebody posts something about the sixers and there are people who complain that, like, we were talking about the Sixers or that somebody else is talking about the Sixers. And then they, they drop, like, the E-A-G-L-E-S Eagles at the end. I'm like, all right, like, I, this happened the other day. And I was like, all right, so this guy had accused the this fan or, or somebody tweeting about being cultish or about uh, caring about their team and, and how, like, they were just being blindly loyal. And my whole point is, I mean – by trolling somebody with the Eagles chant, you are trolling somebody for liking their team, calling them a, a bit irrational for, for believing in them when you're cheering for a team that hasn't won a championship since 1960. Like, of all the teams in the city, they've got the longest drought. So I, I just think if, if football weren't as big of a sport in this, like, other world where it's it's just not it, – it's like that – it's like the hockey of what mainstream sports would be. I think we would be looking at Eagles fans differently. I do think you're right about the kids, about taking your kids to practice. Like I, I now I get that. I think that actually does make a lot of sense. I have never heard a take before that said, you know, I wish people realized how crazy Eagles fans were. Like that's all I've ever heard is that the Eagles fans are the craziest. Like if you were to ask NFL random fans, Who's the craziest, loudest fans? They're going to say the Raiders. They're going to say the Eagles are obnoxious and crazy. Like, that's all I've ever heard. I think what Adam, so, I think what Russ was trying to say, though, was not that it's not the crazy factor, but it's that sort of I was getting the blind, the blind loyalty factor. Because Eagles fans, have, in my view, always been, while confident and the always next year mantra rings true, I feel like we are pretty good as Eagles fans about being realistic and kind of even uh, overly negative. Like Eagles Twitter during an Eagles game is just absurd because if one guy misses a block or drops a pass for those next five minutes, people are ready to hold him, hold stakes to his throat. 
And but see, the that, Flyers that fans the are more likely to be making excuses for that player. Like, it, how dare you? I can't tell you how many times people gave me shit for criticizing Brzezgalov because just, it was the defense's fault. The Flyers fans so like to blame just, a concept or a system or the coach and never an individual player, whereas I think Eagles fans are the opposite. So I think that's what he meant but, in terms of, like, more I, think, no, see, I, I think you made. I think you just kind of made the case, though. Because if— if I, I don't I don't I don't agree with you. I, I do not think that Eagles fans are the most rational or the most level headed or realistic fans in the city or in the league. They're just not. Think about how many times you go to a barber, you go to a bar, you go to get a hoagie, and you're listening to people at the beginning of the year saying, "Yo, I think the, I think this year they can they can win the Super Bowl." A barber. I think they could. I think they. I think they could really. Like. All right, go. I, Pick, pick another I'm place, laughing. Kyle. Just you know what I'm funny. getting at. But, like, the the idea here is it seems like every year Eagles fans, for the most part – now, look, I would consider myself a rational fan. Kyle, I would consider you rational. I would consider Adam rational. I think for the vast majority of a fan base, Eagles fans are not rational. They're, they they will look at Alshon Jeffrey and think that now that makes them the favorite in the NFC East and it probably makes them the favorite in the NFC. And if they're the favorite in the NFC, then it's a 50-50 chance and they can win the Super Bowl. I think more people take that that kind of approach, but there's such a large fan base and there's not this like little culture section like like the Process Sixers that, that we give it a, a whole lot of thought because the mainstream opinion and and what we're used to seeing yeah. might not totally line up. That know. that's my point. I that that's, I that's just know. where I'm at. I just look. I listen to I listen to like Angelo in the morning and Gargano and all that stuff. I never hear anyone call in saying the Eagles are going to win the Super Bowl. I never hear the crazy stuff. Uh, I feel like Eagles fans are inherently more pessimistic. Kyle, to your point about why Eagles fans react more to the play, I think that's the nature of the game. When a guy on the Flyers turns it over, that three minutes later could impact a goal, whereas in football, we have six seconds of paying attention, followed by 40 seconds of talking about what just happened in the six seconds. It's the perfect sport built for Twitter because there's literally nothing happening in between like six seconds of action. Uh, Russ, in terms of like comparing fans and their rationality, fans are never rational from my experience. Uh, every sporting event I go to, I listen to people and I go, no one here knows anything that's going on, but that's why fan is short for fanatic and they're just, they've lost their damn minds. But that's why when I see the crazy face-painted Eagles fan jumping around, not wearing a shirt in 20-degree weather, I appreciate him because I would never do that. But someone of my fan base needs to do that. So I appreciate the fan base. I love the fan that calls up and says the Eagles are going to win the Super Bowl. I love the fan that calls up and says the Flyers are going to win the, Super, the, the Stanley Cup. But... I don't say that because I know the faults of these teams, but um, I think every fan base has their irrational fans. I think every fan base is crazy, but I think that the Flyers, um, you know, I, I think that the Flyers, I, I would take it as a compliment, Russ, because I've, I've always thought Flyers fans are much more knowledgeable about their sport and the intricacies than a lot of the other ones. I think that... Um, Football and basketball, it's too easy to look at at statistics that don't matter. Stuff like tackles or hits 
or you know all, all these stats that don't really matter at all or yards and not factor in all the other things that that accompany that but um i i will also say russ you kind of sound like a eagles fans don't get enough shit like we do when i'm telling you from a national perspective no fan base gets more shit than the eagles i mean yeah I, I agree. I understand what you're saying. I mean, I don't think that Eagles fans get enough flack within the Philadelphia market. I don't mean like in in terms of national. I think Philly fans across the board in every sport are looked at that that very. Yeah, you see Eagles fans fair. as the bully of Philadelphia. Yeah, I mean, and what's I, funny I is think, I think that's kind never... of fair because if you if you if like if you see a report that there are a bunch of Eagles fans who are tailgating and getting plastered to go in and see practice, like I think that. That makes a little bit of my of question the point to you and I, is: and it, I've never looked at different fan bases in Philadelphia as different, because I'm an I'm a Flyers, Phillies, Sixers, Eagles fan. Not not order, just I am a fan of all four of those teams, and I've never thought of an Eagles fan yelling at a Flyers fan, like and being like your team. Like I've never thought of that because I am fans of all of those teams. So are you telling me that as a predominant fan of the Flyers that Eagles fans shit on your fandom? Is that what you're telling me? I mean, I'm a fan of, I, I hate saying like a four for four or a five for five, but like I'd consider myself a fan of all the teams, but I don't necessarily associate myself as like being uh, an all birds all the time kind of fan. So I think, I think, like, as a whole, your point about hockey fans, especially Flyers fans, being knowledgeable is is quite valid, and I think that would probably go nationwide as well because I think hockey and even soccer in, in the U.S., um, there there's constantly this, this need to feel like you have to justify the existence of your sport. So that... I think that part is why right. Like fans, I was going to say that come there's, there's a right? direct correlation, I think, between people that are Flyers fans and people that just seemingly know more about the NHL, whereas I know a lot of Eagles fans that don't know a lot about other teams, but they know a lot about their Eagles. I just, for me, I've just never understood the rooting against other other fans in Philadelphia. I just never knew that was a thing. This this uh, episode was brought to you by the crossing broad mute button. Not a lot of interruption because Kyle couldn't interrupt because of the mute button. Uh, for Russ, for Kyle, hit us up on the iTunes comments. Leave a five-star review. We'll make sure to read it later this week. I apologize. I'm not going to be here Wednesday. I'm really, really sorry, but I promise I'll be back Friday. I love you guys, uh, and we will talk to you guys soon. Kyle, happy shitting.